us to help one another. Where do we get it? Why do we act this way when we gather as a congregation of the saints? Because it's in the New Testament. That's the way the writers in the New Testament speak to the church. Brothers and sisters. You know, the other term. Saints. They speak and write to the church gathered in a local facility. They speak with a spirit of confidence, not suspicion. So we, we adopt that, right? And we speak to one another, not like, there's a brother in Christ. <laughs> we don't speak with suspicion. We speak with confidence, charity, confidence in the by a few external factors. In other words, benefit of that. When we consider that within the context of chapter 6, I'm popping real loud. I can hear myself popping. When we consider that in the context of Hebrews, the apostle is doing the same. Why am I getting all this? Because remember a couple of weeks ago, I made some statements about it. That I don't believe that anybody's in here saved. Right? Do you think believers can lose their salvation? Do you believe that? No. 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 I don't. I hope to get this with that today. But what is the apostle doing? The way we're going to have to handle chapter 6 is by identifying the audience. But I'm suggesting you have already identified the audience. They're believers. How can we be so sure? Consider what I've introduced to you, that the apostle is charitably judging the church, including chapter 6, charitably. He is treating them as what? Believers. That's the charitable judgment. Believers. He is dressing them as such from an informed judgment. How is he so informed? Like I said to you, I make that statement of you, you make that statement of me. How am I, how am I and you making that judgment based on what factors? We're here. Factor one. Factor two, we get to know each other. Find out your testimony, find testimony. And we begin to not suspect. All the way, we begin to judge charitably. That's probably true, that person didn't lie, they didn't love God. That, that's, that's the way the church interacts. Here, the important decision that the writer of Hebrews is making as he writes to the church as believers in chapter 6 is a charitable judgment that he's already assessed in chapter 2, verse 3. I'm suggesting to you, the apostle is saying in his sermon, you're believers! How do you know that? Because, remember, you and I heard the gospel together, chapter 2, verse 3. It was attested to, to us, you and me. And then in chapter 5, you need to keep growing in Christ upon the foundation that is already laid. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Keep growing. Keep going, he says. The charitable judgment is not a spirit of suspicion. You're probably not. And there's probably some in this group that are not. Therefore, I'm going to speak to you, the ones who are here who are not believers. I'm going to want to do. No, the context is the same. 
is speaking charitable judgment to church, as he did in chapter 2, as he did in chapter 5, well, maybe I would say, as he did in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6. The charitable judgment is still in play. So for us to ask now, who is the audience in chapter 6? That's how I respond to that question. We've already answered it. The same audience from chapter 1. The charitable judgment in the text at work is believers are the audience in chapter 6. If that stands, which I know that it does, you're like, well, he is why This is not tight. Based upon that lot that I have locked up so tightly, if that does stand, that there is a charitable judgment at work within the church, then at this point in the text, it would be the wrong question for us now this morning to ask, who's there? It's the wrong question. Again, I think we only ask that question because we have a thesis and we make that logical fallacy. We have a thesis, and when we work through the text for evidence that is the anecdote to our thesis. I have an idea that he's identifying unbelievers in the, in the congregation because I don't like that he speaks this way to a congregation. Since I have that thesis, I'm going to find through the text language that affirms my thesis. What if we start with the apostles' thesis? And that is that there is a church of believers here in Rome. Because they heard the gospel, right? I've already told them, all of them, they keep growing in Christ. And now I'm going to speak to them to another measure of their growth in Christ. And that is perseverance. Then we know what the audience. The apostles' thesis is believers must so it speaks not to unbelievers about perseverance to believers about perseverance. Let me pause just briefly this way because some of you might be thinking but Christ speaks about how the church is a mixed moment. The wheat and the tares are growing together. So there are going to be unbelievers within the congregation. And maybe that's what he's doing here in chapter 6, is speaking to those who are kind of hidden in amongst the ranks of believers. And he is exhorting them, you need to repent and believe. But in the case of the rest of you, it's all the believers here, you're going to be fine. Maybe we think, because he speaks of the church as a mixed multitude, are you denying in that charitable judgment that there's a mixed multitude? No, not at all. They're in touch with Is the apostle aware that there probably is among believers in any gathering? Unbelievers? Sure. No one's so naive as to think every individual that does have remain is believing. Yet, the force 
whole language of the New Testament speaking to a local congregation is confident, not suspicious. Are they, is it because they're so naive? Uh, I don't think any of us would say that the apostles are. It is they speak charitably. That there are cases of disobedience. When one stands up in the congregation and says, I don't believe! Or maybe they do it in a less grandier way, they do it through behaviors that are clearly anti Christ. There is a function, isn't there, in the New Testament? It's called church discipline that begins in a pathway of execution toward that believer to bring them back into belief, to bring them back to repentance and joining with the congregation. It's called church discipline. So there is a role, but you don't start with a spirit of suspicion. I bet this side are believing. I bet this side yep. definitely is not. <laughs> so I'm going to write right now, I'm going to talk to, just bear with me in your case, beloved. Okay? Just time out. I'm warning you, unless you repent and believe, but in your case, beloved, I'm convinced of better things. This is not the way the text is function, and we are wrong to conceive of it that way. And I say we conceive of it that way because we don't like the language. So we rework the question of audience. There must be in its own view in mind in this text, even though it hasn't been in mind one, two, three, four, or five years. Let me offer you a better way forward. I trust that we both appreciate this text and the language to us believers about Christians. Instead of asking that the what I think is the wrong question, who's there? Or we should be asking instead of who's there, we should ask this, why is this here? Why? Why is this text here for me? What purpose is this text serving in my life? Not who was there? Why is this here for me? What purpose? That is, we could ask it this way. What is the function of biblical warnings? What is the function? Not who, to whom is it addressed? It's addressed to the church. But why is the question? Why? What is the function? And it's contributing purposes to my life in Christ. What is its purpose? Rather than who in the world was there. The simple answer is this. I'll give you the answer up front, and then hopefully I can argue such a way as to convince you in the meantime, and it will include with my mind, sliding the door whole block time. The simple answer is this. Apply this text is here. Or what is its function? Simple answer. God uses means in the keeping of his children. That's it, right? Simple. You believe that? Then to build on that, so I'm starting at this most simple factor. God uses means in the keeping of his children. Building on that, then let's explore that simple answer and fill it out a little bit more. Consider that God uses as means in the keeping of his children 
warnings and promises, threats and consolation. God uses means to keep them as children. God uses as means to keep them as children. Warnings and promises, threats and consolations. These are not in competition to other means. That is to say, so is that it? Is that how God's going to keep us on the pathway through Christ to glory? Is by threatening us the whole time or warning us the whole time? And so we live like this all the time with a full of thunder? Now I'm going to go down and pray for the next ten hours. Lest I get struck with that next bull. I hear that thunder, and I'm scared sick. Because this is it. Did I fall off? Did I fall away? No, no, no. It's not the only means that God uses, but it is in coordination with other means. It's not soul that means that the only threatening you. And I will show you that the threatened warning language serves confidence. In Christ. It isn't if you say this that God does warn believers. You must not believe that He encourages them. It's not an either or equation, it is a part of the whole that God uses knowing who you are and what you need and who He is. His voice that he knows that you are about to sin. He knows what you need in him. So he speaks peace. You are not alone. Fill the field. He speaks bread. You are given to arrogance. So last year. Because the bumpers are in light. Keep you with us. When you turn to the word, I'm going to make it. I'm awesome. Very much. I don't know. I have no pathway for I grow in that. Speak peace. Speak courage. Speak grace. I'm so awesome. Speak one. Even bigger. Watch yourself. Because he knows what you need in Christ. So I will argue for the next few moments that if this text is properly understood, it will in no way diminish our confidence in God. But as I will demonstrate, as the Apostle Bishop, it will crown our certainty in His promises all the more. So, to the text. Let's walk through the text. If you're there in Hebrews chapter 6, let's begin piecing the text together. As I argued before, uh, we have seen before that the writer of, the, the actual book of Hebrews that you're looking at is actually a single sermon. So what you see there, and uh, again, uh, back in school now, we are taught in any uh, preaching book, preaching class, preaching uh, exhibition, etc., etc., etc. But when you go to write a sermon, it's a bit of art and science, so don't be uh, woodenly annoying. You know, spice it up a bit, uh, tell a story, and then jump back in. What this is called is explanation, okay? illustration, application. 
These three elements are supposed to comprise a sermon, right? These basic bare bone elements. Explanation. What do you need to know from this text? Illustration. Show them a little bit about like, how this works itself out. And then in the end, after I've got you know, the explanation and the illustration, boom! I hit you with the application. You know, this is the idea. I try it all the time. <laughs> this is the idea, right? So, if we just took the idea that Hebrews function as that sermon, this single preached sermon, what we find here, even within this smaller sub-sermon of the sermon, we call that chapter 6, we find exactly that. We find an explanation. We find now what we're approaching is the illustration. And then he says, I want you to be all more earnest in inheriting promises. That's the application. That's not like a verse that he threw in there at the end, broken off from what he's already developed. He already told us what he hopes us to gain from this morning and illustration. He wants us to gain more full confidence. That's why I'm telling you this. That's why I want to application. So let's kind of just look at now, we're at the illustration. I already dealt two weeks ago with the explanation. It will come in and out of explanation this morning, but we're really going to begin where we left off, and that is the illustration. First thing you must know about the illustration is what? It illustrates what he's already been explaining. We don't want to read verses 1 through, I think it's 6, and then say, now he's telling us a story about some land, some rain, and some crops. Wait, 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 wait. Remember, son, you gotta explain it. Then you gotta illustrate it. Then you gotta apply it. Explanation 1 through 6. Now I'm gonna give you the illustration. That means this land, crop, and rain illustrate not something new, they illustrate the explanation that's already in the present. So let's keep that in mind. Now we're dealing with verses 7 and 8 as an illustration of verse 46. This will help us understand the impact, the function of the warning in your heart. Look to the text with me, if you will. I'll read verses 7 and 8. That's where we're picking up right now with the idea of how he's illustrating the explanation of 1 through 6. Or, land that has drunk the rain that often falls upon Right? So you know this is what he's doing. He's just illustrating everything he just got done saying. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. Okay, now the question here in this portion in the text. Well, let me continue. I'll read verse 8. But, here's, here's its contrast. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless, near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Let's step back and take verses 7 and 8 as we walk through the text together. Let's take the, uh, the, the global position of the passage. That is, consider verse 7 and 8 are functioning off this larger picture, right? There's three components in this large-scale picture that 7 and 8 are functioning in. Both are there. And then we'll speak about where the church is in it. But the three components of this large illustration that he's getting at, one, land, two, rain, three, a crop. These three elements are dominating seven and eight. Everybody is either in the land, they're interacting with the rain, and there is a crop produced. 
Everybody is there. You, me, everybody. Charitable judgment is your sleeper. Land, rain, crop. So anytime you come, let's talk procedure just for a brief moment. I'm only getting a little bit more piece meal piece by piece here because we're dealing with you know, such a subject. But procedurally, let's get technical for a moment. Procedurally, how do you want to handle then uh, if we go back to the gospel? How is it you want to handle an illustration? Well, let's just say procedurally, you don't want to make too much out of the pieces that are there. Right? You, you, you want to kind of draw back and have some distance. But neither do you want to ignore the details. So you want to only you know, kind of walk wisely and, and look at each piece. Uh, and then draw it out a piece, work on it, see if it's working within the hole, and come back with another piece and put it back in the hole. You don't want to just you know, try to through it. And you don't want to go overboard and be there two days and find who knows what that's in there. We're all like, I've never got that. And they're like, oh, it's a nutshell. The Lord showed me. Beware of nutshells. Because <laughs> the Lord will show us all. All right, so, so let, 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 let's do that then. With confidence, it, it's there. We just need to work on it a bit. Not too much, not too little. Let's just walk through the text. We have three elements of the text. Land, rain, crops. Okay? So let's look at it. Right there in the very first portion of verse 7. For land, period. Everybody in 7 8 is land that has drunk the rain that often falls on. Alright, so let's take the first piece, land. Everybody has land in this illustration. The land is, in other words, the hearer before God. Okay, so it's just a hearer, period. But right now, you are land. Individually, corporately. That's where we're at in this illustration. Land. They're the, it's, it, it's, it's, it's laying there, and it's hearing. See right now? Hearing. Individual hearer before God. Two, the rain. Universally. The rain. What is the rain? Well, let's see. Look there. The land that has drunk the rain, that, what does the rain do? Falls on it. So it, it's soaking up, it's hearing, it's engaging the rain. What is the rain? What would you say right now? I hope it's not really a bad answer. <laughs> terrible at awkward transitions. Gospel. Okay, gospel. Someone said it. Okay, so we kind of have a blended audience. Uh, this Let's just, I'm going to provide the question and the answer. Okay, at this point. I need food. Uh, okay, so we, we have plan, everybody, right? Okay, we have rain, and we're engaging the rain. It is, at this point, in the universal level, it is content from God. That, 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 that's the part that's going to mine out. It's content. It, it's rain. It, it's a word from the Lord. It's content. Now, more refined, if we think this is illustrating what he's already been explaining, then what ordinarily is the content? Yes! Adam just murdered that he didn't want to go over to. <laughs> he is, at this point, on the track. Most specifically, in this particular text, the content, the rain that is falling on the land. Everybody is warning. I just told it to you for six verses. Right? That's what he said. Boom, 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 boom. Now let me illustrate. 
illustrate how this works. Let's say there's land, and there's rain that's falling. Okay, so here, and I'm having fall down or descend upon me content from God. The content particular to what I've been explaining is warning particular here. Okay, so we've got two things happening in this text. The land is the hearer. The rain is the command, or the content, or in this case, more specifically, the warning. Thirdly, the third element of seven and eight together is a crop. Right? So let's look at that. The land, here you are, has drunk or engaged the rain that often falls on it. This context is important. And there is a production of a crop. From this experience, the production of the crop in this case is a useful one, but let's go get ahead of ourselves. It is a crop. So, so we we have here land, here content warning, and then and then everybody is here, everybody. There's a confidence. There's a response. Always, when the word of the Lord goes forward to the hearer, there is a response. Everybody responds. By not responding, you respond. There's your response. There is always a response to the preached word or, or the command of the Lord. So here we go. Now, that's universal in the text, right? You agree. Everyone agrees with this. We have the three components that now, more narrowly, where is the church in this illustration? Because it says universally, this is how it's going to work. You're going to be there, the word is going to be spoken to you, there's going to be a warning in that word, in this text, and then there's going to be a production of crop. There's going to be a response. Now, let's look at the text. Further to see the church in this illustration, more narrowly. Okay, well, verse 7, join with me looking at the text. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop, here it is, here's the portion within the church, produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. Just, just to then take the useful production of crop. United in the text right there as evidence of the blessing from God. And then let me just break those three pieces of the text back down and find you and I, I'm charitably judging, you and I in this text. Let me take those three points and then take this language of it produces a useful crop. It's evidence of the blessing of God and put it right back into you. Consider with me the three components. Number one, the land. Who is the land that receives the word of the Lord in the second portion of verse 7? The church believers. You, this one, you, receive the same means as everybody else right now. You're receiving the same means. You're a hearer. And the word of the Lord is going forward onto you. The rain is falling. And your response is, I'm receiving I'm believing. I'm drinking it up. It's far from me, Lord. Command what you will only. Grant that which you 
keep it, baby. It's coming. I'm taking it. That's you, the hearer. <coughs> Producing a useful crop. Secondly, the rain that is falling is God's warning. As, and this is the peace, this is the peace. God's warning is falling on you in this text. The rain. As I means to the production of a God. That you're going to have a useful crop. On my own? No. Because of this. Not without. But I can have a bowling crop who speaks this way to me. Amen. And he does. And he will have a bowling crop because he speaks this way. As a believer, your land soaks up the warning, and because you're soaking up, that godly crop is producing. And that godly crop in your life, your spirits, considering Jesus, that right there, guess what? That's evidence of that you heard the word, you responded by faith, and there is fruit being produced in your life. Guess what is underlying all of that? The blessing. Consider the second portion of the condition or the conclusion. Let me suggest this is the conclusion of the illustration. This is where I'm starting to build into my argument. And you all know how long is this argument going to go? No, the second portion is much shorter. But I'm building into my argument at this point. What we see in the apostle is this illustration serves, please hear me, it serves to express the apostle's confidence. Not his suspicion of the church. But it serves to express his confidence that the warnings will have a positive effect upon God's children. Let me show you how this initial word confidence, that you will simply have a useful crop because of it. This initial word of confidence is even more clearly stated as we continue in 
verses 8 through 10. Now, he speaks in 7, generally in the first portion. He speaks simply of you, that the church of Jesus Christ purchased by his blood, as being her who hears and produces in her a useful crop. And we know it's only useful because God is blessing it. And now he speaks of the other portion of the equation. Back to the general. Verse 8. This speaks in his confidence. Verse 8. But... If it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Again, we need to procedurally give an account for how we handle this text. How are we going to walk through this next portion of the text? It is, let's go piece by piece. Verse, um, verse 9. I'm sorry, I, I, I need to read verse 9 as I develop I thought I'd stop right at verse 8, but I'll incorporate verse 8 into 9, etc. Let's continue reading that. I'm going to start over at verse 8 so that you're with me in the, uh, the flow of the text. And now I'll come back and proceed with the law. Verse 8. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless. And you're being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak it this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his sin and serving saints as you still do. Now, the next portion of our text is this question. What is their case? Right? So you see the other one person is proud, the other side will not produce the proud. And then he says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case. Back to the statement that I made in the introduction. As we ask a few questions and answers from the text. The question is, at this point, is it in his mind? I know he's not doing this publicly. You know he's not doing this publicly. Yet, is it in your mind that when he says, though we speak in this way, beloved, we are convinced of better things. He's speaking to half the congregation. Break music. That's simple. That's ridiculous. Exactly. I'm not suggesting that any of us are thinking he is. Yet in his mind, is he considering, is he now writing to a mixed multitude? Because he says, oh, we speak in this way. In your case, there must be two cases there. And it must be within the congregation. The leaders don't clear. He's only wanting one half. No. No, 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 no. Stop. Wait. Well, then, let me ask you this. What is their case or their situation? What is their case? Well, look at their case. Verse 9. In your case, what is the case of the hearer? You see in the text. What is the case of the audience? They're beloved. They're believing. In your case, you who hear me now, you, in your case, you, all of you, charitable judgment, you're all beloved. That's the case. That is, verse 8 expresses, if we can jump back up to verse 8, in contrast to the beloved who hear the warning and respond with a useful crop, which is the case of the church for the charitable judgment. Verse 8 
does not produce a godly crop in the unbeliever. It doesn't. The warning serves the promises only in the blood. Verse 8, the guy in verse 8 doesn't care about warning. He doesn't care. He is born from heaven, and he doesn't care. And we know that's not the case, but who? When I, when I stand up here this morning and I preach, and I think of you during the week, I know you care. You, terribly judging, all of you care. And I know, apart from God's grace, an unbeliever does not. So we preach earnestly to the blood. Because we know it will, by faith, produce a new of God come, not with an unbeliever's mind. This text is your case for the love. That's your case. Look at how he continues to do it. I am convinced of what? Since you are beloved, if there's confusion, then I'm speaking harshly to you as your pastor, verse 9. Let me assure you of your love of Christ. You're the beloved. And since you are, look at the rest of the text, we feel sure of what? Better things. The question at this point for me in the text is, why is he so sure of better things? Precisely because God uses these things in you to produce a God crop. Not in the God in verse 8 that we create in the audience. He must have been there. And that's what the first six verses were to do. Not this one. I'm convinced, though I speak in this way, it seems a little, I know, but though I speak in this way, in your case, you're beloved. So since I speak in this way, I'm sure of better things than verse 8. Why? Because you're beloved. You're God's people. And when God speaks, both in peace and in warning, you might be receiving. assessment of this congregation is you are all I can say, though I speak to you this way, through this very thing, God will produce better things in verse 
this text. But John, why is he so sure about better things? My answer was because God uses these things right here in securing the blood and the way of salvation. Third is, for God it is not so unjust to overlook. How does that play into the argument here about perseverance? We feel sure of better things because of these things that we speak, things that are better than falling away because they're God's people. Well, what are those things? They're the things in the passage, verse 9, the last portion of verse 9. What things, particularly, through these things will we experience? Things that belong to salvation. Remember we said salvation is prospective. Look, it's always speaking prospectively, forward. Because I say these things, I'm surely convinced of better things for you. What things? Things that belong to that salvation. I mean, these things will keep you going to the thing that is to descend. Yeah. So, how then does the argument for God is not so unjust to overlook ground his argument here? Well, look at verse 9 then. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. A persecuted congregation still serving other saints. God will not overlook that. That is, what do we mean? Are they earning justification? Are they earning salvation? Absolutely not. It is clear from the text. What would be unjust for God to do at this point? Abandon his own crop. That his crop, he's produced in them. God's the fruit listed in the text is serving other saints, caring for them as they still do. What would be unjust of God? To abandon what I earned? No, to abandon you for what he has produced. You've received the blessing. You're producing fruit. And God would never abandon his own work. Unjust. I've earned a good life. It only makes sense that it would be unjust for God to abandon himself in you. He wouldn't. He's produced a new fruit of caring for the saints, and he would never leave them. It's endless that you're a branch of mine. God is not so unjust. You have the work of not completed. <coughs> it is so long and so just because exactly what we must have in Christ. And you have never been when it is faithful and just to complete that work that we have. Faithful is He who also completes. Waiting is not completed.
Father, I pray that you would help 